Awesome. Hey, well, welcome to church, man. So glad to have you uh, with us on this Sunday morning here uh, in Snohomish. God is up to something good in the Northwest, and uh, we are fortunate to have a seat at the table. So thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. I don't know about you, but uh, 2020 either feels like it has lasted about 10 years or that it's lasted about 10 minutes. And depending on the week, it either seems extremely long or, or extremely short. But uh, this week, believe it or not, if y'all remember, anybody see that uh, disaster of a debate we had this week? Uh, some of you know my background uh, is in politics and public policy. I spent about a decade doing government work uh, and uh, campaign work. And I worked on state campaigns and federal campaigns and ended up as a lobbyist at one point and a legislative aide for a state representative. And, it, it kind of ran the gamut in that political world until God called me into full-time ministry. But anytime something political happens, my phone always blows up. People texting me going, what did you think? Or did you watch this? Or what's your impression? Or what's going on? Or I can't believe you watched this. And so anyways, uh, so many people were asking me this week, and I just thought it might be easier this morning to show you a video uh, that kind of maybe best describes my thoughts about the political events, in specific, the debate this week. So if you guys would roll that for our peeps this morning. This segment, we're going to move on to the second segment. That was really a productive segment, wasn't it? <laughs> for seeing, and I suspect most of you, if not all of you, have ever seen and discussed. Well, that was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire, inside a trainer. Those are my thoughts. They stole the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Anyways, in all seriousness, we haven't prayed. Uh, for the president uh, this week. And I tell people all the time, my question is not who you voted for, it's who you're praying for. So in scripture, we got a command to pray for those in leadership, pray for those in authority. And so we've been praying and believing for uh, God's best uh, in this season. Uh, I've never prayed for the return of Christ more than I have in 2020. <laughs> I'm hoping if he does decide to come back, it's prior to November 3rd. And so, uh, but if not, we will live through and, and hopefully survive yet another uh, presidential election, and uh, you know, with that being said, I, I do believe that that people, especially Christians, have responsibility to vote. One of the reasons why I vote is because I also complain. And uh, if you complain but you don't vote, then you're really irritating. And so, uh, if you want to have a right to complain, you should probably also exercise your right to vote. And uh, we, uh, 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 luckily, in this country, uh, we have a representative democracy, which means this: we get exactly the leaders we deserve. So whether that's an indictment on us or whether that's a compliment to us is, is probably dependent maybe upon your political preference this morning. Uh, but I, I'll tell you what, if you, if you haven't yet, uh, uh, make sure that, that, that you can, especially in this state, exercise uh, your right to vote because uh, it's one of the ways that we can inform uh, the, the public square uh, uh, as it pertains to, to governmental policy. Hey, this morning, uh, I, I'm going to share with you a sermon uh, I've entitled, Placing a Demand on the Anointing. Placing a Demand uh, on the Anointing. And let me preface that sermon with these thoughts. Uh, for you and I, I think sometimes as we think about our relationship with God or relationship with God inside the context of a local church, whether we express it or not, I think sometimes we fall into the theological trap of if God really wanted to do it, he would just do it. I believe God is sovereign. I believe he is all-powerful. I believe a lot of times he superintends into the circumstances of life, sovereignly placing people into positions, setting you up for things that in no way you could ever manufacture on your own. But as I read scripture, especially as I read the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what I am struck by is how many times there are things that are pulled out of the person of Jesus through a demand that is placed on his anointing. And for you and I today, as we think about what it looks to lead, lead these Christ-centered lives, my question for you is, are you and do you place a demand 
on what Jesus provides, placing a demand on the anointing. Sometimes people come to church with that aforementioned attitude. If God really wants to, he'll do it with or without me. But for whatever reason, this God desires to partner with humanity. I don't know why. I don't understand it. I look at me. I look at you. You look at me. We, we, we go, why, 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 why doesn't God just snap his fingers like some sort of Greco-Roman mythological snapping of the fingers and just save people he wants to save and heal people he wants to heal and just have it all said and done? And, and, and the answer to that question is that what God desires most is relationship with people. He has invited you to co-heir and co-labor with him in heavenly places. That's why Paul tells the church, you're not seated in earthly places, you're seated in heavenly places to do the business of heaven. And Jesus tells this to his disciples. He says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Why? Because friends know the master's business. And the primary purpose for knowing the master's business is that so you can engage in the business of the father. Remember when Jesus is left in the temple and Joseph and Mary finally realize it. They turn around to go pick him up. And they say, what were you doing? He says, I must be about my father's business. You know, when you professed faith in Jesus Christ, what you received is an invitation into the business of the father. Not just to watch, not just to observe, not just to say, well, God's sovereign, so I guess if he wants to do it, he'll end up doing it. But no, as an active, living, breathing participant in the work of God. That's why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in this fashion. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is training them to participate in the work of Christ. And so for you and I, as we think about what it looks like to have a relationship with God, I want you to think in the context or the wineskin or the construct of what it looks like to put a demand on what Christ provides. If you were to leave this service today and go out to lunch at one of the many fine eating establishments here in the city of Stohomish, and you were to sit down for lunch, and all of a sudden you were to see Michael Jordan walk into that restaurant and sit at the table beside you. I imagine if you had any common sense, it would change the way that you would interact. You'd probably want an autograph before you left. You'd probably want a picture to show your kids before you left. You would want to have this story about this interaction. Automatically, you would recognize because he entered the room, it's not common, it's important, it's special, there's a reason he's here, and I'm not leaving without my interaction. That's just me. That's not you. That's just me. You ever see like a video of a celebrity walking down the street and then trying to be undercover and they've got a big hat on and glasses and then all of a sudden somebody spots them, recognizes them for who they are. And a crowd begins to amass. And people don't want to leave without their story. It's similar in our world today, especially now because every person who has a phone is also a photographer. Something happens in the world, everybody is taking out their phone to film it. You go to a concert, people aren't watching the concert, they're watching their phone filming the concert. Why? Because they want to have a story about their interaction. About 15 years ago, I was flying home from West Africa, and I'd been on a mission trip there uh, in, in, in one of those nations for a number of weeks and was teaching in their Bible college and preaching and doing crusades. And on the way home, uh, I was on the plane, exhausted, tired, ready to come back to the States. And uh, I, I was sitting uh, on the plane and just about the last person to get on the, the plane was a very fine, well-dressed African man. And he was walking Walking, walking. You know when you get that feeling like somebody's going to sit in the empty seat right next to you? You know like when you're broke, you fly economy, but then you just hope nobody sits next to you so you can pretend it's first class, you know? And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I'm flying back from the work of the ministry. He got me first class in economy. And as I see this guy get on the plane, I'm like, no, I know exactly what's going to happen. He makes a beeline, sits right next to me. And You know, when you're tired, you don't want anybody to talk. You want to watch the the film on the plane, you want to knock out, you want to go to sleep. God always seemed to put one person next to you who all they have ever wanted to do in their entire life is talk. So I'm tired, I'm exhausted, this man come in, he's very fine, very well dressed, he sits down right next to me. 
begins to strike up a conversation. Well, what do you do? And why are you here? And why are you visiting this nation? And all these sorts of things. And ten minutes into the conversation, I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, I work in government. And I go, well, funny story. You know, I do too. And I'm just doing this mission trip thing with my church. But you know, I work in government too. I said, what do you do in government? He said, I'm the vice president. I said, the vice president of what? He said, the nation. All of a sudden, it changed my interaction. I said, well, excuse me. How are you doing? So good to see. All of a sudden, everything changed. Because I, I recognized that I was sitting next to a dignitary, a man who had authority, one who operated as a gatekeeper, somebody who was important. And I just get a stinky suspicion in my heart this morning that there are a lot of Christians who come to church bored with a God they barely know, not recognizing that the King of glory is in their midst. I'm just at church. I'm just checking the box. I'm just checking this place out. How much more does recognizing that Jesus is in the room change the way that we respond to his presence? And the reason why we sing about who God is and talk about who God is is so that when we are in his presence, you can ask, watch, according to his will. See, the Apostle John clarifies how we ought to pray in 1 John. He says, if we ask according to his will, or according to his character, or according to his purpose. That's, that's why the Apostle John writes 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. They're apostolic letters to the churches in Asia Minor. He'd been trapped on an island, Patmos. They tried to kill him. Nope, didn't work, so he got sent back. He's one of the only earlier followers of Christ who doesn't die a terrible death via persecution. He dies of old age. But prior to doing it, he writes these letters to the churches in Asia Minor to be read abroad. And he's essentially just telling them about who this Jesus is. For this reason, the Son of God was made manifest to dismantle the works of darkness over and over and over again. These apostolic letters are filled with the identity of Christ. Why? Because when you know who he is, you know what to ask for. Watch what Jesus says in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 7. He says, if an evil father knows how to give good gifts to his children, how much more does the heavenly father know to give unto you? But if you don't know what it's like, your prayer for healing will look like this. God, I hope you're in a good mood. Instead of this, I will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. If you don't know who he is, your prayer for prosperity looks like, God, please just bail me out. If I could just make it one more day. But when you know what he's like, it's no, my God will supply and my life will prosper even as my soul prospers. When you know what he's like. I just think that we operate with perpetual identity crisis. We don't know who he is, therefore we don't know who we are. Therefore, when we get in his presence, instead of boldness, we have insecurity. God, I know I made a mistake last week, and if you could just help me out, and I just... Uh... Yet all over scripture, it's not the length of prayer, the volume of prayer that catches the attention of Jesus. It's just individuals who put a desperate demand on what he provides. You ever notice in scripture, Jesus all the time find himself ministering to people that aren't within his covenantal purview. Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. I was sent as a Jewish rabbi unto the Jews to reveal to them that I am the promised one, the son of God. And yet all the time, Jesus has these interactions with people who are outside the covenant. And he'll even tell them, man, I wasn't sent here for you. I, I was sent here for them. But there's something about the demand that you're placing on my life that's drawing something out of who I am. Now, now watch, watch, watch what the Bible says. Luke 6. He came down the road and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Watch, watch, watch. And the whole multitude sought to touch him. 
for power went out from him and healed them all. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew again to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman came out. Not a Jewish woman, a Canaanite woman. Outside the covenant. She says to Jesus, my daughter is severely demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus didn't answer her a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send this woman away, and she keep crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. She said, Lord, help me. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She says, yes, it is, Lord, for even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus said to her, woman, Great is your faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very moment. See, some of you have taken resistance in the spirit as a sign that God's not interested in your request. And I want to challenge you today. The next time that you feel resistance in the spirit, don't take it as a sign that God's not interested. Take it as a sign that God is developing your demand. Why? Because the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so sometimes God knows that in order to develop a demand in us, it requires us to walk through the valley of resistance from him. Man, I prayed and it didn't happen, so I guess God's not interested. Or maybe God was seeing if you're interested. Maybe God was seeing if you're hungry. Maybe God was inviting you to level up in your life as it pertains to the demand that you place on him. You know, we get disappointed because we treat him like a vending machine. I put my quarter in, and unless what I'm asking for pops out in the next 30 seconds, then I guess this thing is broken. And maybe God is interested in more than just the transaction of your life. He's interested in the relationship. He values being pursued. He values being wanted. And what that looks like oftentimes in our life is being a Canaanite woman who says, God, I need freedom, I need healing, I need deliverance, and feeling like, God, where are you at in the midst of this mess in my life? And he's beckoning us and he's inviting us. And develop your hunger. Watch what Paul tells the church in Corinth. He said, earnestly, desire spiritual gifts. I hear this so much in the church. Well, if God wanted me to have it, I'd have it. Except that's not the instruction to the church ever, anywhere. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. It's like if you're single and you want to be married, you don't go, well, if God want me to be married, he's going to drop off somebody on my doorstep. No, he invites you to pursue, and that pursuit changes who you are. All of a sudden, you want to dress up and shave and look good and shower and be, what? Because you are pursuing something that you want. And yet we use all these theological tricks to get us to believe that there ain't ever any pursuit on our end of the equation. And God is inviting you to put a demand on what he provides. You ever watch the news and hear the news broadcasters talking about the economy of our nation? They use this term, supply and demand. It's actually the ideological framework, the foundation of free market capitalism. The idea that there is not a supply unless there's a demand. The idea that entrepreneurs merged with manufacturers develop products that people are asking for. You know, nine months ago, there wasn't a rush on masks. Today there is. So you got people who have made other products 20, 30, 40 years, who all of a sudden have converted their entire warehouses into making masks. Why? Because there's a demand that the supply couldn't keep up with. Hand sanitizer. Some of you order that on Amazon. It takes four weeks to get to you from a company with a label that you've never heard of. 
Why? Because all of a sudden, in the market, there is a demand, and it is exceeding the supply. And so you've got all of these companies being formed overnight, people manufacturing things like rubber gloves and masks and hand sanitizers. Why? Because there was a disruption in our world that created a demand. And my God, if you can't see the spiritual parallel this morning, I don't know if I can help you. If there is no supply without a demand. I just, I just wonder why God isn't here. I'm just not feeling God. Where's the demand in your life? I come to church not expecting anything, half asleep, mad at God, bored out of my mind. Yeah, you get exactly what you're expecting. But people who are hungry, man, they receive. Isn't it interesting when people are hungry, even when everything isn't awesome, they can still find a way to receive. It's almost as if the ability to receive is not my job, but yours. I didn't feel like I received anything today. You want me to pry your mouth open? You want me to chew up the food and then spit it into you? How do you want this thing to work? I thought receiving was the act of spiritual maturity. So maybe, just maybe, it's my job to preach, but it ought to be your job to receive. And when there's a demand in the audience, it causes a supply of the Spirit to be funneled to your circumstance. Now watch what Paul says in Philippians 1. He said, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. When you hear the word anointing, I want you to think supply of the Spirit. God has put a supply of the Spirit in each of us. But when you get into an environment of hungry people, it pulls it out of you. And when we gather as the church, we add our faith one to another. And we place a demand on the supply of the Spirit in Jesus. And we ask that He would pour out in even greater measure. And God responds to hunger. See, that was the mistake of the rich young ruler. He thought God would respond to perfection. That was the mistake of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They thought that God would respond to rules and regulations. That was the mistake of the Roman government. They thought that their pagan gods would respond to brute force and brutality. But all over Scripture, especially in the narrative of Jesus, in the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's one thing that is abundantly clear. God responds to hunger. When you place a demand on the anointing, there's something that stirs in a supply of the Spirit. You know the first miracle that Jesus ever performs, he doesn't even want to do? Watch, John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding of Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. But watch. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots, water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots. Watch what's happening here. Jesus is communicating to his mother, Mary, the hour has not yet come for me to be revealed to humanity in the context of the miraculous. And so Mary goes, awesome, thank you, walks to his disciples and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And the very next response from Jesus is fill the water pot. I'm so struck by this. I think sometimes we think of Jesus as this like kind of animated robot God who walks around handing out yeses and noes. 
but he's so much more a father who's interested in relationship with his children. And Mary, in this context, is asking him to perform a miracle. She knows that there is a supply of the Spirit in her son's life. She knows that there is something there. She's seen it. She heard it when the angel told her that she was pregnant. She heard it through the, through the context of the Immaculate Conception and, and, and his sinless birth. And, and she, she knows that there's something in Jesus. And even though it's not the right time, Jesus still steps out of space and time and performs the miracle as it's been requested. Why? Because somebody at a wedding put a demand on the supply of the Spirit. Healing is a mystery. I don't know why we pray for some people and they receive and other people and they don't. I know that every Christian will be 100% healed someday. Whether it's on this side of heaven or that side of heaven. But could I offer to you this morning a subtle critique of our theology on healing? I think sometimes, instead of pressing in for more or placing a demand on what we know to be true about his character, we revert to statements like this. I guess it's just not your time. And maybe if there's one thing that the miracle in John 2 proves is that it's not so much a timing issue as it is a hunger issue. With that being said, healing is a mystery. I think for every person I pray for who gets healed, there's two or three or four or ten that don't. I don't understand it. But I can't allow an imperfect record at the altar to decrease the level of demand in my life. And so I've got to go back to the Father because I know Him to be true. I know healing is the children's bread. I know by His stripes we are healed. I know Jesus healed them all. I know He never turned away somebody who needed a miracle. I know this to be true about Him. And if it's true about Him, then by the Spirit, it can be true about us. And I think sometimes, maybe for us, we fall into these theological get-out-of-jail-free cards to make it easier on the way that we understand and maybe I just got to tell people it's a mystery and I can't give you cookie cutter answers for things that are larger than my ability to comprehend but I can tell you this I'm going to contend for healing every week because that's the Jesus we serve and collectively we gather and we put a demand on what he provides you know what the scripture calls him, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Jehovah Shalom, God who is our peace. Jehovah Nisi, the God who is our banner. In Mark 5, which will be my central text this morning, starting in verse 21, the Bible tells a familiar story. but I want to communicate it to you this morning in an unfamiliar way. In Mark 5, starting in verse 21. The Bible says this, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was still there. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Watch the pattern in Mark 5. When people approach God in faith, there's an expectation that creates a demand. You know that your expectation helps shape your behavior in any faith environment. In, in our culture, we call it lean in. 
This idea that we sit on the edge of our seats, proverbially expecting to receive from the Lord. Scripture says it this way, when there are two blind men that are healed on the side of the road, Jesus says, let it be unto you according to your faith. And so we want to have faith for big things. We want to have faith for God to be God, for him to do everything Scripture can do in our lives. And so proverbially in our spirits, we are leaned in. We're sitting on the edge of our seats expecting to receive from him. Now, Jairus, a leader in the synagogue, the synagogues that have tried to kill him, run him off the cliff, that will eventually conspire with the Roman government to crucify him, a leader in the synagogue, their daughter is sick. And can I tell you, Fred, if there's not an issue in your life that will draw you to his presence, what you'll find is issues in other people's lives, sometimes family members, sometimes kids, sometimes relatives that puts you in that place of desperation and hunger for God to be God. Now, you don't think a lot about healing until you need a miracle in your daughter's life. You don't think a lot about prosperity or provision until you need God to show up as you're going to lose your house. All of a sudden, you find yourself in the wine press of life, and you've got every prophetic promise in Scripture that you're declaring because you need God to show up and show off and break through in your circumstance. And can I tell you, Fred, it's interesting here with Jairus, he come out to Jesus. The Bible says when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Can I tell you, just be careful in judging other people's manifestations as it pertains to their encounter with Jesus. Sometimes people fall at the altar. They shake, they roll, they cry, they sob, they jump. It's easy for us to take a backseat view and well, I don't know, man. Maybe they're faking it. I don't know if that's real. I don't know if that's genuine. Yeah, but you came in this morning. You smiled at everybody. You're faking that too, so. <laughs> you judge other people's manifestations. You become like David's wife, judging his worship. Got to shut up your womb. You judge other, and all of a sudden you go, God, what about my miracle? He said, you've been so busy judging everybody else's miracle, it's actually prevented you from having one of your own. Friend, for you and me, man, we ought to be careful judging other people's manifestations. Why? Because we haven't walked through their experiences. Somebody come off the street broken, beat up, abused, hurt coming out of a life of addiction, don't know upside from downside, scared to death, thinking about taking their own life. Yeah, you can better imagine when they get in the presence of God, they're going to break, something's going to come off of them. They might laugh, shout, cry, jump. Why? Because when the Spirit sets you free, something begins to rise in your life. And if we become professional judges of other people's experience, it's just a cheap cover-up for a lack of our own. And Jairus, the dignified leader of the synagogue, you ain't so dignified when your daughter's sick. You ain't so dignified when you need a miracle to separate you from life, or you ain't so dignified anymore. In your life, you can either have dignity or desperation. You choose. But I'll tell you, only one of those puts a demand on heaven. And watch what happens. And a woman was there. Mark 5 even ain't about Jairus. <laughs> Mark 5, watch, watch, watch. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding, hemorrhaging, 12 years. She has suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Watch, she had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. You been there? Been there before? You been to every doctor, been 12 years, you got no answers? You don't know what's going on. All they do is take your money. You feel worse afterwards. But watch. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I can just touch his clothes, or some translations say the hem of his garment, I will be healed. I want to draw your attention to the first three words of verse 27. When she heard. What does scripture tell us? Faith comes by hearing. hearing. That's where faith starts. 
Pastor, how do I grow the faith, the seed of faith that's in my life? First, it comes by hearing. And not just hearing any word, but hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. When she heard about Jesus. See, some of us have been so busy hearing about everything else from everybody else that we've missed out on the story of Jesus. And it's my job to tell you the story of Jesus every Sunday until you believe it with every fiber of your being. That's why we talk about Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of the church. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father above. And upon that rock of revelation, I will build my church. The point is Jesus. Sometimes you take a little flack. People want you to talk about everything else. They want you to comment on every social issue, every political issue. Every issue in the world around us. That's why we have the news. Turn on the news. Hear what they say. I want to talk about Jesus. And when you talk about Jesus, when you obsessively talk about Jesus, his character and nature does a work of transformation amongst the community, and you will get the results that you're praying for in society and culture around you. It's the church's job to talk about Jesus. Sometimes we get preachers in here. All they want to do is tell stories. Use illustrations. I ain't against illustrations. But I'll tell you what, if you leave this place hearing more of my illustrations than you do of Scripture, I've missed the boat. We're talking about Jesus. And when we talk about Jesus, there is an innate power that is affiliated with that name. For at his name, every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus, every other spirit bows. The name of Jesus, every witch loses their power. Hello. At the name of Jesus, every warlock curse is broken against your family. At the name of Jesus, every dark spirit, every spirit of infirmity, every depressive and suicidal thought, it ends at the name of Jesus. And we got the name of culture and the name of news and the name of our favorite politicians. But when you confess the name of Jesus, something changes in the atmosphere. There's been this thing that's tried to bind us up. Whatever you say, don't say his name. Whatever you say, don't invoke his name. You can talk about all the positions you have, but whatever you do, don't, in, don't, 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 don't evoke your religious persuasion. People asking our candidates, people asking Supreme Court candidates, just make sure your faith doesn't impact your decision-making too much. See, we believe that lie about how we ought to live. If your faith don't impact the decisions you made, you don't got faith. So we're going to be people who believe in the name of Jesus. It's important. When she heard about Jesus. Now, now watch verse 28. First three words. First three words of verse 28. 27 says, when she heard. Verse 28 says this. Because she thought. As a man thinks, so is he. Now, when this story is told in the book of Matthew, watch what Scripture says. Matthew 9, 21. For she said to herself... If I may only touch the hem of his garment. For she said to herself. Can I tell you where faith starts? It starts with hearing, number one. Number two, it progresses into an interior dialogue. For she said to herself, if I may touch the hem of his garment. See, some of us get into church and we talk ourselves out of our miracle. Oh, God's probably too busy. I mean, somebody else probably has a bigger need than I do. I probably don't deserve it, man. I've had a rough week or a rough month or a rough life. Yeah, God's probably not going to do it anyways. Faith starts with hearing. It progresses into an interior dialogue. She said to herself, if I can just get to his garment, I know something will happen in my life. And I just wonder if that became the interior dialogue of our community. Man, if I just get to his presence, man, if I just get to his house, man, if I, just, if I just get in his atmosphere, if I just get in the environment of heaven, I know that I know that I know something will transpire inside of me. For she said to herself, watch, faith is what you tell yourself 
when Jesus is in the house. You know, uh, a few few weeks ago, uh, my, my son was was playing outside with some friends, and they were playing with some toys, and somehow one of the toys that they were playing with ended up on the roof. Ended up on the roof. And these kids. I told Matthew, I said, I'm going to put you on the roof. <laughs> one of the toys ended up on the roof. The window was open, so I was inside, but I was hearing the dialogue outside. And the little boy said to Matthew, he said, what are we going to do? And Matthew said, I'm going to have to get my dad. <laughs> he said this next. This is what little kids say. You know, this is not profound, but watch the implication. He says this. My dad can do anything. Watch. Unless you have faith like a... Where are the people in this region who really believe my father can do anything? You know, sometimes in the church, things get stressful. Praying, believing feel like God's giving you vision, but you haven't seen the fullness of it. You're, try, you're trying to hang on. And I find myself talking to me more than I talk to you. You know, Saturday nights when the church is kind of empty, calm, nobody here, I preach this message on stage when nobody's here. And the reason why I do that is because in order for me to operate in faith on Sunday, I got to preach myself into faith on Saturday because I don't want to preach out of what I know I want to preach out of what I've experienced and I want to experience this first through me and scripture says in preaching you'll save yourself this word first has to impact me you know when you're talking to somebody and you can tell they haven't lived through what they're preaching it just sounds hollow there ain't no power there ain't no authority. They're just rattling off somebody else's stuff. But when somebody been through something and it's a testimony more than it is a teaching, there's power in it. Does something in your life. And as I'm preaching this message to me last night, I just felt like the Lord challenged me. You still believe I can do anything. You know, when I face crisis and Concern, problems, need miracle, need a breakthrough in my life. I find myself walking around and on the interior reminding myself, my God could do anything. My Father could do anything. Oh, Russell, it looks impossible. I don't know how that would happen. Yeah, 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 no, 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 I know. But my Father, he could do anything. Now, the doctor said there's no hope. Now, I get what they said, but my God can, can do anything. Now, I, I know you had a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. Everything feels screwed up, but, but I really believe that my God can do anything. I talk myself into faith. And all of a sudden, I find myself operating with a demand on God's supply. Let me end with this. I so wish sometimes that there was the ability for people to record with their phones things that happened 2,000 years ago. But the best that we have today is artistic renditions of those events. I don't know exactly what it looked like. For the woman with the issue of blood to crawl through the crowd to grab a hold of his garment, but I, I, I imagine it may have looked something like this. Now, for those of you who've never been to Israel, you might be unfamiliar with this imagery. But one day, you go with me to Israel, we'll go with Pastor Russ and Pastor Kim, and you'll see the Jewish rabbis. They wear this prayer shawl, sometimes over their heads, sometimes over their shoulders, but they wear this prayer shawl. And you know, this prayer shawl has looked this way for 6,000 years because it was instituted as part of the law in the book of Numbers. <laughs> and the Lord God said to Moses that my people on their cloaks and on their robes will wear tassels 
to remind them of their covenant with me. The rabbi said that these tassels were representative of the covenant that God made with the Hebrew children and the laws of Moses that governed them in the wilderness, all 613 of them. They're reminded by the tassels. Now watch this. In the book of Malachi, the Old Testament prophet, he's prophesying about Jesus, the Messiah who is to come. And he says, when the Messiah comes, he will be the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. Watch. The Hebrew word for wings translates to this phrase, the hem of his garment. When the woman grabbed a hold of the hem of his garment, she became a prophetic fulfillment of what was prophesied about his messianic ministry. The Lord spoke to me about what's happening here in this city. He said, Russell, what is happening in this city will soon happen in this region. So get ready. And I responded to the Lord as honest as I could. Hey, sounds great. Appreciate that. Thank you. Here's the thing. Pretty overwhelmed already with what's happening here. And so I'm not sure how to manage what's happening in a region. Here's what I heard the Lord say. If you'll grab a hold of my wings, when I rise, so will you. This is why we grab a hold of the hem of his garment. This is why we place a demand on what he provides. Because when he rises, so do we. That's why the primary purpose of the church is to lift high the name of Jesus. Because when Jesus is lifted up, he draws all people unto himself. And as we glorify Jesus, and as we bring honor to him, he rises. And all of those who have crawled through the crowd and in desperation are holding on for their miracle. When the rabbi rises, so do they. When the rabbi's wings begin to flap, they begin to rise. And this is a picture of what's happening in this church. We bring glory and honor to Jesus in worship. We allow the Spirit of God to stir in people's hearts. And we allow the anointing to matriculate in this place. And we bring honor and worth to him. We say all power and honor and glory unto the Lamb who was and is and is to come. We join the song of heaven, the angels and the elders. And we cry out, let our prayer and worship rise like an incense in this place. Why? Because we are priests unto God. And this is our priestly duty. And when he rises, so do we. Friend, today, for you and I, I want to encourage you to put a demand on the one who is rising in this place. He gives us an opportunity to reach out and hold on. Oh, you know what it's like to hold on for dear life? And sometimes that's the season we're in. Oh, God, you just got to bail me out. I'm, I'm holding on for dear life. But whether you're the woman with the issue of blood or Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, there's more than enough in the house for you today. Let me end with this thought. This woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. Due to the law of Moses, she would be ceremoniously unclean. 
not able to enter the temple, not able to offer sacrifice, not able to participate in any of the Jewish feasts. In a lot of way, a lot of ways, outcast from society. And in this moment, as Jesus is walking by, she thinks to herself, this is my chance. You might be here today and feeling like, man, I'm, I'm all dry. Maybe I don't know Jesus like I should. Maybe I've been contending for a miracle in my life and feel a little disappointed by the circumstances I'm facing. Maybe I feel left out and confused and alone and overlooked by those who should have invited me in. Friend, today, as you place a demand on Jesus, you can rise. Come on, would you stand with me as we close? We're going to end in worship and end with an invitation to come to the altar. I want to add my faith to yours and pray with you this morning and believe for God's best in your life. I don't know what else I offer you outside of a little faith, a lot of desperation, and an audacious demand for God to be God. I want everything Scripture says we can have. I won't settle for anything less. And together as a community, we've got an opportunity to increase our demand and in doing so, increase our supply. Come on, let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we honor you. God, may your word come alive inside each of our hearts today in unique and different ways. God, we need you more this hour than maybe we ever have before. And so, God, we're attaching ourselves to the hem of your garment. We're attaching ourselves to that which reminds us that we are a covenant people. And as we glorify and honor you, as we enter into your gates with thanksgiving and praise, as we lift you up, as you rise, so will we. Uh, We say in this place, do your best work in Jesus' name. Friend, if you want prayer in a moment, I'm going to count to three. That will signify an opportunity for you to get up out of your seat. Join me here at the altar. I want to end in a time of prayer, activation, adding my faith one to another. Let's see God do his best work in your life. If you need a miracle in your body, especially as it pertains to physical healing, let's go after it this morning. And if you need a fresh touch of God, a fresh baptism of fire and power in your life, come on, let's go after it this morning. If you need a miracle in your family, let's go after it this morning. Don't miss an opportunity to put a demand on what only God can provide. If that's you, you want prayer. Would I count to three? Make your way out of your seat. Join me at the altar. Come on, one. Come on, two. Come on, three. Just step out of your out of your seat. Come quick. Come on, join me at the altar. Let's pray. Come on, let's believe. Let's confess. Prayer team, pastors, elders, come on, let's pray. Come on, together, let's add our faith. Believe that Jesus is rising in this place.